Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at the Beatitudes, and we come to this one found in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The Beatitudes are an interesting combination of teachings by our Messiah. They are in very, uh, they're very closely, in my opinion, related to the Ten Commandments, and thereby are closely related to the law. The The Beatitudes, like the law, is something you can't pick and choose. We've been studying about the law on Wednesday night. We get about 35 or so we had last Wednesday. Come on out if you can. You can just come in and out, whatever you need to do. Come some Wednesday evening and study with us, learn with us. One of the things we learn is that the law is one entity. We don't read of the Mosaic laws. We read of the Mosaic law. And so there are 613 commandments, but those 613 commandments make up one entity. And so therefore, James would say, if we keep all the laws, 612 of the 613 commandments, he tells us we're guilty of its entirety. We might say that's awfully unjust. I mean, 612 is pretty good in my book. And I'll tell you, if you said to me, I kept 612, I'd give you the last one and we'll call it even, you know, but 612 commandments and the scripture tells us you're guilty of its entirety. How is that possible? Because we break down the laws in order to talk about them, but God sees them as one entity, one whole body. So you can't pick and choose what laws you'd like to obey and which laws you would not like to obey. For example, we might choose not to obey the sacrificial laws because we're at a disadvantage. There's no temple. We're still guilty of not offering the sacrifices despite the fact we don't have a temple. Because that's God's commandment. So we might want to say, look, I'll pick this one. But even if we pick that commandment over that one, we'll still find ourselves not perfectly obeying that particular commandment. So we're not free to pick and choose the commandments we like, we prefer, or even seem easier than others. Similarly, we're not free to pick which beatitudes we like and which one we don't. This might be one that we wouldn't pick. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, Particularly if we misunderstand what is understood or what Yeshua is teaching about being pure in heart. I particularly like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because he doesn't say, blessed are those who are righteous. 
You just have to hunger and thirst for it. I find that to be pretty difficult in and of itself. There are many times I don't want to be righteous. But if I had to pick one that I would like that might be a little easier, at least I don't have to do it. I just have to hunger for it. I just have to thirst for it. But Yeshua doesn't allow us that luxury. We can't pick what we like. It's one whole entity that must be observed. Now, when we think about what it means to be pure in heart, we have to also remember that we haven't gotten there yet. But in verse 20, we have the most important verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. In which Yeshua says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Yeshua says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's not telling us we need to make more commandments. He's not telling us we need to observe the commandments more stringently than they did. They fasted twice a week. They fasted on the variety of times that would be called for to fast. They were ones that had ritual cleansing uh, ceremonies that were observed. If Yeshua meant we were to be more ritually vigorous than they, we will all fail. Because we cannot live up to what even the scribes and Pharisees taught as a model or reflection of what it is to be righteous. And yet Yeshua tells us our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So what was Yeshua really talking about? He was not talking about the external veneer of what one does. He's talking about the internal reality of what or who one is. What are we really in our heart, not merely in our outward external veneer that people observe? The more we are convinced that our righteousness is seen in the things that we do, We will be led, we will have a propensity and inclination to be judging the lives of other people. As long as we continue to think that righteousness is reflected purely on the basis of our behavior, we'll always look at the behavior of others to see just how righteous they may be. And we'll always be pretty good because they'll always be less righteous than we are. And therefore, we'll always feel better than the next person. That's why in the course of history or of time, when we think that way, we reduce everything to how we act. And eventually, we come to the Adolf Hitlers of the world. And we're happy about them because in in light of them, we look pretty good. But the standard we're to look at is not the down the rungs of the ladder to those who don't live up to our standard. Our challenge is to look up the rungs of the ladder to the Lord himself and to see how far removed we really are from his righteousness. The reality is the holier we think we become, the more distant we are really from God himself. It's not unlike a classical piece of music. When a young person learns Beethoven's fifth and has it memorized and gets on the stage and plays, that individual feels pretty good about what they've been able to accomplish and they ought to. 
But as they become more and more proficient and they practice harder and harder as time goes on, they realize they are infinitesimally distant from what Beethoven actually intended by the playing of his uh, fifth or whatever it is. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? The more we strive to reach the goal, the more we strive to hit the goal, the more we realize how far away from the goal we actually are. We think we've gotten, you know, whatever we're trying to do better. But that little bit of distance is an infinite of space. That's why Paul, interestingly enough, at the end of his life, in the book of Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. You would think at the end of his life, he would say, you know, I've got some of this down. I'm really getting it together and I can really help you guys out because I know how it's supposed to be done. But his comment is, I'm the worst of all sinners. And the more I've lived with God, the more I am aware of how far short I fall of the glory of God. If righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees is understood in terms of our behavior, we will all fail the test. And that's not what Yeshua is talking about. He's not saying we need to make more laws than already exist. Because we have to remember, Paul taught us something else about the law, and he taught many things about it, but for the sake of this point... The more law we get, the more we become recognizable as breakers of the law. Without the law, I would not have known sin, he says. So what does he mean? With the law, I know sin more and more. Sin becomes much more clear, is his point. The more I study and understand what the law is about. Sin becomes clearer to me. Not only that, he says, sin becomes multiplied. I realize there's much more of it in my life than I've thought before. So what does he tell us the purpose of the law is? It's to reveal our need. And so when Yeshua says our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, he doesn't mean we've got to become more ritually and ceremonially observant of God's ways. So we come back to the Beatitudes. We can't pick and choose the ones we like, but they're all critical to a life in God. And they're all intertwined and interconnected. So he says at the front end, blessed are the poor in spirit. Dan made reference to this reality. Blessed are those. Blessed means happy are those for they've experienced the good favor of God. Blessed are those that have come to recognize just how poor they are with regard to their spiritual fiber. They've recognized that I am in great need of spiritual help. Not just help, I need spiritual rescuing. Because I have drowned and I am dead in trespasses and sins is Paul's expression. And I need someone to revive me, to resuscitate me, to resurrect me. For otherwise, I am dead. I don't realize that because I live. I go about my day and I think I'm alive. But to God, I am not. 
And so Yeshua says, blessed are those that recognize their poverty of spirituality, their distance from God. Why? Because it will prompt them, he says, secondly, to mourn over that condition. And when we've come to grips with who we really are in the sight of God, we mourn that. And we say, Lord, can you do something with my distance between me and you? And the scripture says that when we mourn over this, we are brought to a point of humility, meekness. And in that point of humility and meekness, we realize we cannot rely upon our own sense or our own strength, our own observing of anything in order to gain God's favor. But we need his mercy. So we cry out to God in our poverty of spirit. We mourn the reality of who we really are in the sight of God without God. And we are humbled before him. And we say, Lord, if you can do something with my life, please do something. If you can save me, please save me. If you can bring me into a relationship with you, please do that. We are humbled before him. And we cry out in anguish of soul. And what happens? In verse 6, he tells us, and he fills us. That's the righteousness we are to hunger and thirst for. Not the righteousness of good behavior, but the righteousness of God that can be extended to us. And as Messiah fulfills, completes, and expands the significance of the law in his very life, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We stand before God because the Lord sees Yeshua in us. And he sees the righteousness of Messiah imparted to us and we are welcomed into his very presence. It's the righteousness of God that we receive in our hunger and thirst for him. And when we are filled And I can't help but think of the relevance to the Spirit of God who fills the believer with himself, who brings the believer into a relationship with God by dwelling within us. Yeshua said the the Spirit of God would not only be with you, but he would be in you, whatever that means. He is in us. He doesn't just dwell among us, though that is true. But he dwells within you. We collectively, Paul tells us, are the tabernacles of God. But individually, we are tabernacles in which God dwells and lives and moves and breathes through us. It is only then that we can have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a righteousness of God that is produced by God through his spirit in our lives. It is him that is to be seen and not merely our religiosity. It is God dwelling within us. And that's why Paul is so deeply entrenched in helping us understand the spirit of God in fullness. 
And so when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's righteousness by his spirit fills us. And then what do we look like? He tells us what we're to look like. If we were to take a survey and we would ask, what does a good follower of Messiah look like? I would dare say 80% of believers, maybe more, would describe things that have to do with ritual and observance, religiosity. We'd say a good believer is one who's in service every week. A good believer is one who prays every day. A good believer is one who reads the scripture every day. The problem with things like that is a person could be seen as a good believer for a week. And his, his relationship with God amounts to nothing. He tells us what a manifestation of a life controlled by the Spirit of God looks like. And he tells us, he tells us, first of all, it is seen in mercy. It is seen in relieving the misery of other people, not making more misery. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were guilty of. They would search high and low, Yeshua said, in order to make one convert. And he says, and you would make them more a child of hell than you already are. They made their life more miserable, not more free and released. That's why Peter says in the book of Acts, we should not heap on the Gentiles that which we ourselves couldn't bear. He doesn't say that we couldn't obey. He talks about the law as something we were bearing on our shoulders, which we couldn't carry. And now he says we shouldn't impose that on others. What we should be doing is being vehicles of mercy to others. So that when the Spirit of God shows up, he shows up in our lives as lives that are merciful to others. And principally, mercy is seen in forgiveness. And that's what we talked about last week. Over and over, that's how Yeshua depicts mercy. And that is the way God has been merciful to you and I. He's forgiven us of our sin, relieved us of our misery, and we no longer will face judgment before God, but will have to dwell in his presence for all of eternity. So what does a life filled with the Spirit of God look like? He tells us it's a life of mercy. And today, it's a life of purity of heart. Now, the problem with purity is we oftentimes confuse it with one of two things. We oftentimes confuse it with prudishness. And so those who are more sexually free, they look at those who aspire to sexual purity and they look at them as drab and dull and not fun people. That's because we oftentimes confuse purity with being prudish. Sometimes we confuse purity with being sinless. And certainly that's not what Yeshua means. But the word purity, interestingly enough, is used in a number of other contexts that can help us understand what is meant here. It's used, for example, in wine that is not diluted with water. 
It's used in regard to grain that is not mixed with the chaff, but separated from it. If we were to look into the Hebrew scriptures, and you can turn here with me if you would like, in Leviticus chapter 36, excuse me, in Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet speaks to this issue. And he says, for I will, verse 24, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. In this passage, we see what purity is about, this cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. It results in having a singleness of mind, singleness of conviction and devotion to the living God. Being pure in heart means God is central to my life. This is why James will say a double-minded man is, what does he say? A double-minded man is unstable unstable in all his ways because he's not single-minded and singly devoted to that which ought to be preeminent in our lives. This is the same idea in the Psalms. Take a look at Psalm 24. In Psalm 24... David writes, or the writer writes, see? He talks about purity, David. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What does that look like? It's one who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive the blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Purity means singleness of devotion. Not going after false gods or those things that might divert us from our love for the Lord. So Yeshua tells us in chapter 5 of Matthew, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they will see God. Now that's a lofty statement. (laughs) Will we really see God? (laughs) The writer to the Hebrews is really interesting about Moses because it says that when he came up to the burning bush, he saw him who is invisible is what the writer to the Hebrews says. How is that possible? How do you see an invisible anything? (laughs) Well, it doesn't mean see physically like we might think of it, but that we would understand him, perceive him, love him, follow him. We will have God in his fullness and in all of his beauty and all of his grace. Seems to be the meaning, meaning here. We will see God, we will experience God, we will be in fellowship with God. And what's interesting about sight is that 
And in this case, the issue is not what is most important. Because oftentimes we see, well, we see many things. But the more important things oftentimes get obscured by less important things. It's not so much the quality of the thing that is to be seen as it is the devotion of the individual to be focused on the thing to be seen itself. Well, if you think about this, if you drive through one of these canyons or you come up to the hills and you see this incredible view, especially like from Pepperdine, you know, and you look out on the Pacific Ocean and you see this incredible view. But all you need to do is to take your thumb and bring it up close to your eye. And after a while, you can't see the beauty of, of the ocean anymore, even though it's much more grand and significant perhaps than your thumb. But if your thumb is brought so close that that's the thing you're focusing on, you can't see the beauty and the glory of the thing that you ought to be looking at. God is like that. He's seeable. He's observable. He's followable. But if our gaze are on those things that are not compatible with the nature and beauty and majesty of God, we will not see him. And thus, Messiah tells us, it's the pure in heart who are devoted, single-minded, single-visioned to God who will see him. And so it's not unlikely or It is often the case that when people come to me and they say, Gary, I've been praying, and it's like my prayers hit the ceiling, they go no further. Sometimes it's because our prayers are focused on our prayers and not to the one we're praying to. And even our prayers can become a distraction from God himself. And we focus on the thing rather than the him that we want to see. When we're pure of heart and we're devoted and focused on the Lord, Yeshua says we will see him. And that's the problem with the law. We focus on the commandments and they get in the way of seeing God himself. The law is holy, just, and good. But our sinfulness prohibits us from seeing God through it. Because it manifests our need and it tells us of our solution for that need or that remedy for the need. In itself is not the remedy. It points to the remedy. It's a witness to the one who will deliver us from our need. And so here Yeshua is telling us what is needed is purity of heart, singleness of mind and heart to the Lord. And the result will be that we will see God. So those who recognize their poverty of spirit, those who recognize their indebtedness to the living God, are ones who will be moved To mourn over who they are. As we mourn over who we are, we are humbled before God. And as we are humbled before him and cry out to him 
for this hunger and thirst for righteousness, he fills us with it. And when he fills us with the righteousness of Messiah, it manifests itself in being merciful to others. And as we are merciful to others, we become pure in heart. Singleness of mind to the Lord. And we are promised we will therefore see God. And when we see God, what do we see? Who do we see? We see one who is of peace. And therefore he comes to enable us to have peace with him. To enable us to have peace with one another. To have peace within ourselves. And thus Yeshua tells us, we blessed are the peacemakers. Because we've seen God and we want to be like him. And the result is bringing peace into our world and into our lives and the lives of others. And when we are involved in God's program, like Yeshua himself, we will be persecuted for such things. But we are to be of good cheer because we're in good company. The company of the prophets and the company of Messiah himself. What a rich passage, is it not? You know, just in closing, in Matthew 15 and in Mark chapter 8, you have the record of the Pharisees who travel from Jerusalem all the way to Galilee to ask Yeshua a question. Now, if you were to travel that far, that's like one end of the promised land to the next. If I was doing that, I'd say, I've got to ask him, are you the Messiah? I've got to ask him, if you are the Messiah, how can I have life eternal? But they don't ask that. They ask, why is it that your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? Now, you've got to be amazed by that. To travel all that way, to ask a question like that. <laughs> and we do it all the time. Wouldn't it be so much better to say, Lord, I've lived with you so many years. How can I be like you? How can I do the impossible by the indwelling presence of your spirit? How can I be merciful when I want revenge? How can I be a peacemaker when I want the anger to continue? How can I endure the persecution rather than bow before it? How can I be like you, blessed by the Spirit of God? How can I be a blessed one? That's the penetrating question that these Beatitudes raise in my own heart and mind. And one very last thing, not very, very last thing, but one very last thing. These Beatitudes don't end. I make it sound like if we mourn, then we'll be humble. But the reality is, it's a cycle. We need to learn more and more of our poverty of spirit. Like Paul, I'm the chiefest of sinners at the end of his life. We never arrive and say, oh, I know what it means to be poor in spirit. We're always learning to be poor in spirit. But it's got to start 
And then it continues. We need to always learn what it means to mourn over our sinfulness. We need to always learn what it means to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Though he imparts it fully enough that we can stay before him for all of eternity. We never have enough of what we need. And thus we always need to be more merciful than before. We need to be more pure in heart than we were the day before. We need to be more peacemakers than we were last week. And we need to be filled with greater perseverance and endurance than we've had five years before. None of us can ever say, I've got it. And none of us should ever look down the rungs of the ladder to those below us so as to feel good about ourselves. We need to stand on the ladder and look up, appreciate whatever rung we are on, and hope we can get higher. And one day, we will see God when we stand in his presence, whatever that means. We will be with him for all of eternity. Let's pray. As we're praying, if the ushers would come, if Jerry would come to lead us in the Lord's Supper, I would pray that as we think of these words, we think of Yeshua's words to us. We think of the indwelling presence of the wonderful, majestic Spirit of God that indwells within us to make us pure of heart. Father, as we partake of these elements that represent the shed blood of our Messiah, the broken body of Messiah in our behalf, as we partake of these elements, may we think about how you can make us more like yourself. May we simply put ourselves before you and say, Lord, we are in such need. And you have the remedy for us. And then, Father, help us to be like you. May this moment of communion with you be just that, a moment of communion with you, a moment in which we sit before you and allow your words, those things that were true and in which I was not in the way, to reach down into the very inner core of our being, our heart. And may this time with you and the observance of these elements lead to a more pure heart, a more single-minded devotion and dedication to you. That you would be glorified and that our lives would be meaningful, purposeful, significant, used by you for whatever purposes you might have. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.